0: Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and welcome to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs we are champions of life management science providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field i am your host joanna let's get started Hi everyone and welcome back. Today I am going to be talking about eating disorders, something that I'm very excited to talk about because I think we just don't talk about it enough these days. And what are they really? How do we combat the complexities of how it affects our bodies and minds? What is body dysmorphia, we've got so many different questions that we're going to unpack today. And I'm joined by Kathleen Sommet. And Kathleen is a licensed clinical psychologist working in the San Francisco Bay Area with a passion for treating different forms of disordered eating and body image dissatisfaction. Um, She also has experience working with younger people, having worked at Stanford Children's Health, supporting children and adolescents with eating disorders related um, to like medical complexities as well. So we are in great hands today. Um, And yeah, Kathleen. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm great. Thank you. It's so great to have you here with us today. Thank you for having me. No worries. Um, now, before we get started, would you like to introduce yourself to everyone with a bit about who you are and what it is mm-hmm. you do as well? Yeah, so so like you already
1: said, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I uh, maintain a private practice in the San Francisco Bay Area in a suburb of the Bay Area called Marin County. Um, in my practice, I specialize in eating disorders, um, treating adolescents. I used to work with kids as well um, and some adults and transitional age youth. Um, My focus is of course on disordered eating, but within that I also work a lot with addiction, anxiety, depression, um, so many different forms of of mental illness. Um, Yeah, and I I got my PhD in 2018 from a small school called PGSP, Palo Alto University, which hybrids with Stanford. um, And I have my own lived experience. So I really draw from that when I'm working with my clients and patients.
0: Yeah, beautiful. And what led you into a career um, in this? So my own lived experience. Um, When I
1: was 13, I was diagnosed with an eating disorder, actually from a doctor at Stanford. Um, And I struggled, oh gosh, for at least 20, uh, not 20, sorry, um, 30. years or so Um, and then sort of when I was going through my own treatment I realized one of the things that I was really lacking was being able to find other clinicians other therapists that understood my experience who could relate to my narrative and so I decided that I wanted you know to go pursue a higher education so that I could support other people that are perhaps suffering and and make something out of my personal experience. And so, you know, I went I went back to school. I actually dropped out of undergrad for a number of years, went back and then kept going on into a doctoral program where I decided I was gonna specialize in this and um, really try to have an impact in that community. It's something that's very, very dear to my heart.
0: Yeah, amazing. I think having that personal experience, does that like really help you connect with people you work with as well and like, like as an extra step forward?
1: It absolutely does. I think that one of the things that's really challenging when you're working with this population is there's a lot of shame around eating disorders. Um, I find that when somebody is struggling with anorexia, they're a little bit more comfortable talking about that. But if they've struggled with bulimia per se, or maybe even binge eating disorder, there tends to be an element of shame. Um, I struggled for so many years that it sort of took me through all different forms of disordered eating. So I I really lead with that. That said, I'm also aware that my own experience is mine, right? And I I try really hard not to project that onto my clients, of course. But so far in my work, especially with the younger um, folks, you know, the adolescents, I found that sharing my own story has been really helpful um, because although I have the clinical training and knowledge and expertise from that, I'm also able to talk about some of the nuances um, in terms of how it presents, what some of the specific challenges are, um, so I think it's I think it's really helped um, enhance my ability as a clinician.
0: Yeah, amazing. That's really great to hear as well. I think it's really hard sometimes to talk about a topic when you don't have experience in it as well. Um, yeah. Even though like professional experience is great, like having that extra like lived experience is just amazing to be able to connect with as well. So I'm sure a lot of people listening um, will have something – to say about this because they might have gone through it themselves so it's really great to have this um now we're just going to jump into some of our get to know the guest questions um so i'm just going to ask you a bit more um personal (laughs) questions just about yourself um not necessarily related to the topic but what is your favorite book or do you have one I do,
1: I have two favorite books. They're not ones that I've read recently, but I'd say that they are two that have the largest impact on me personally, and also one that has a big impact on me professionally. I think the, so the book Wild by Cheryl Strayed, which has since become a movie starring Reese Witherspoon, great movie, but the book is far superior in my opinion. Um, it's a story of a woman who's going through some real averse adversity and decides to do this trek across the Pacific Crest Trail um, encounters a lot of challenges along the way, but she really perseveres. And so if we're talking about resilience, I think that book actually lends itself really well to that topic. Um, the second book that I really love, and I actually recommend this to my clients every time I get a new client that's struggling with disordered eating or an eating disorder, those can be a little bit different actually um i recommend this book and it's by jenny Schaefer. and there's two books there's um life without ed which is the first one and then there's goodbye ed hello me they're about this woman's journey within her own eating disorder and how she sort of got over it herself with the help of a really awesome psychologist um And it's great. And I I sort of view it as like my Bible. When I first started working with a client, I reference it all of the time. I think it's inspirational, but it also provides from real tactical approaches in terms of um, how to fight against this illness. So I'd say those are the two go tos that really stand out in my mind and my heart
0: beautiful i would definitely love to give them a go i'm a massive book nerd as well so i'm always looking for a new read um would you say you're more into like non-fiction than you are fiction
1: I am, I am, yeah. I wish I could say that I'm into fiction. Um, I think it's the the student in me, you know, going to grad school, you have to sort of have a thirst for knowledge and learning new yeah. things. I love um, sort of anything within, under the umbrella of nonfiction, specifically things that I can kind of relate to my field and working with my clients. Um, I, I would love to enjoy fantasy and that goes for movies as well as books, but I find that I get bored. Um, yeah. My husband, uh, I think, always questions me a little bit when I'm constantly asking to watch documentaries instead of uh, fictional movies and and things like
0: that. Yeah, no, I'm the total opposite. I feel like um, I struggle to get into nonfiction, but I do love a good documentary. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I just love a bit of fantasy, um, something that I've never heard about before. That's um, awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I know. We should exchange, like, recommendations. We should, we
1: should. Yeah, no, I wish I could shut it off and just suspend my imagination, but it's so hard for me to do
0: that. No, I would honestly love to be just totally into documentaries and just have a massive thirst for knowledge from like nonfiction. Um, but that's amazing. How do you find your books? Do you um, have them recommended to you or? Oh gosh, how did I? So I think. The
1: Jenny Schaefer Eating Disorder books were recommended to me, I want to say from a support group that I was in. I actually read the first one the night before I went to treatment in the hotel room. I was with my dad before I went to Johns Hopkins um, treatment facility. And I read it in one go. And I believe that somebody from one of my eating disorder support groups made that recommendation. And I can't remember how I discovered Wild by Cheryl Strait. But that book sort of became my Bible in a way. I walked around with it. I loved it. It was just so impactful for me, um, especially through some of the harder times of my early 20s. I think that I kind of stumbled upon it on my own, um, but I'm not quite sure. I usually just find my books from word of mouth, um, other colleagues and friends that are in this field. My husband, I joke that he basically eats books for breakfast because he just (laughs) is eating, like reading them constantly. Um, And so he's definitely a good source of, you know popular books that I probably should sit down and read
0: yeah great it sounds like you've got a good network for finding Mm -hmm. different books um moving into our next question do you have a movie that you've recently enjoyed or Mm -hmm. like an old-time favorite
1: yeah um I if you had asked me this like five years ago I probably would have said Garden State that's always been my favorite movie in part because I'm I'm such a lover of music and I think the soundtrack is better than most soundtracks I've heard um, but more recently, I rewatched The Soloist, um, and it's oh. just so, it's so powerful. Um, Robert Downey Jr.'s in it. I am forgetting the name of the lead actor. Um, it's gonna come to me, of course, later on, but it's about <laughs> this man who is homeless in LA. Um, he struggles with mental illness, and he um, is a classical musician. And this reporter, um, Robert Downey Jr., stumbles upon him to write a news story. Um, and uh, it's the story of how this reporter sort of changes the life of this man who's homeless and, and sort of um, helps to magnify his musical ability. And um, it's a really, really heartwarming story. I used to play the viola and violin too, and so I think that's kind of why I was drawn to it initially because of the classical um, music aspect to it, but I really recommend it. It's very, very powerful. And it's based wow. on a true story. So there we go. I can't even uh, watch anything <laughs> watch that's not at least
0: based on true. Another nonfiction. We love that. i right. um, <laughs> right. have to add that one to my list as well. It's so good. Yeah. Okay, great. I will definitely get onto that one. Um, And I know we talked about this before, but I would love for you to share with us the podcast that um, oh, you love. Yeah, yeah. 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 so
1: um so my husband i've actually never been a huge podcaster i, I don't listen to that many of them and yeah. surprise surprise when i do it's usually something related to psychology <laughs> um but my husband and i and um, our now 10 month old daughter went to europe for a month in april and so we needed a lot of podcasts because we were doing a lot of long drives and yeah. i discovered um chameleon and within that i think chameleon is like the i guess the organization or whatever that makes these podcasts they did one called wild boys and it's about these two young men who suddenly emerge from like the woods essentially into the small canadian town i can't remember what the town is called um And this town is just like taken aback by these two boys because they look, one of them looks so gaunt and malnourished and they're both very quiet and they just really stick out as as kind of odd. Um, And the town rallies around them and these boys essentially um, confess, you know, we don't have any family. We were raised in the bush um, is how they refer it, refer to it. And so this town does like a go fund me find some housing they're just like blown away by these two people that just emerge suddenly with no family claiming they've never seen a computer screen or anything of that sort um and i'm going to give it away so a little spoiler alert but it it (laughs) turns out these two boys are from a really lovely home in sacramento california and they just ran away um but it was just it was had so many twists and turns and it was so captivating um so that's one that I really liked. And then I also just recently listened to one about Teal Swan. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard of her, but she's within the psychotherapy self-help world. Um, she has quite a following and it's sort of a, a contra- it, it looks at sort of the controversial, controversial nature um, of her practice and her claims to sort of um, be like a, a mental health guide to people that have experienced trauma. Um, it's interesting. I think I think they're both worth a listen for sure. They're very entertaining for sure.
0: Wow. I love how you're giving me all these new recommendations. <laughs> I haven't heard of these podcasts before, but I no, definitely great. want to give them a go. Yeah. Especially the first one, like Wild Boys, right? Yeah. And I yeah. couldn't believe that I'd
1: never heard about this on the news or anything because yeah. it sounds like such a big story. Um, yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. I, I gave away the ending, but it's still worth listening to. It's
0: okay. We've got a spoiler alert. So hopefully people <laughs> will skip past that and they'll listen to this podcast. Um, mm-hmm. but that's amazing. I think we're ready to jump right into our interview questions um like to start off with why is resilience important in your life
1: yeah i think resilience is why i've entered this field um you know i think in order to recover from an eating disorder you have to be resilient you have to believe in resiliency not just for other people but for yourself um Eating disorders are an illness. Are illnesses that really take a grip on a person. Um, they can really beat you down. Um, there's so many moments where you can get off course. And I feel like the, the, the word that describes the recovery journey itself is resiliency. Um, so that's sort of how it's shown up for me. And I don't think that I ever would have described myself as a resilient human being prior to entering recovery And it's something I talk a lot about with my clients. Um, It's something that's really hard for them to see within themselves, because I've noticed that a lot of clients that struggle, they see themselves as weak, um, as burdensome, as all of these negative adjectives, um, when resiliency and resilience is, in fact, the word that comes to mind first for me. I did an exercise when I was doing a training at a hospital, and I asked people, you know, what are some of the first words that come to mind when I say the word eating disorder? Resilience was not one of those, it was burdensome, weak, um, deceitful. Exhausting, all of these other things. But then, when I talked about the strength that is required in order to recover and the ability to, you know, be pushed down and stand up again, it really made sense to people um, that resiliency is, in fact, a really core element of a lot of people that have um, sort of walked this path of of struggle and recovery.
0: Yeah, for sure. And do you find that when you're working with clients that you're not only trying to like help them out of their dis- eating disorder, but also like building their resilience at the same time as well? Yeah, I'm helping
1: them. Um, I think I do both. I think in order to walk beyond that of the illness, it, it's about embodying resilience. Um, it's about recognizing that you have the strength that can that maybe brought you into the illness itself, but it can also carry you out of it. Um, Eating disorders, especially anorexia in particular, require a lot of discipline. Um, It's somebody who has an idea and they're really focused on achieving it. It it just happens to be that that thing is also what um, can potentially kill them. Um, yeah. so I, you know, I think part of, the working with my clients is helping them believe in themselves, helping them believe that they can redirect that strength, um, towards something else. That's a little bit more, um, emotionally fulfilling and, and, um, less, um, uh, maladaptive. Um, so yeah, it's certainly something that we talk about, um, and that I think is really, really important, um, when they're walking that path of healing.
0: That's amazing. And I really want to move into talking about, like stresses and adversity and I know you've just touched on that but do you think resilience means being immune to stresses and adversity um I personally think that there's so much more to that what do you think about that
1: Yeah no um I don't think it has anything to do with immunity from stress or adversity I think resilience is being able to acknowledge when something is really affecting you it's being able to to um notice these stressors face them maybe even get knocked down by them but then stand back up again right i mean i think that's where we recognize we realize our core strength we realize how powerful and strong we can be um in my own experience i realized my personal resiliency when i faced those stressors and when i didn't just overcome them but when i was able to move through them even if moving through them was really tough so I think that those, oper- those are actually opportunities to to recognize it um, and and learn more about what resilience can mean to us individually.
0: Yeah, for sure. And it must be really hard when someone's going through an eating disorder and people around them just say, oh, just start eating. Oh, just start yeah. doing this. You know, like it's so much more complex than let me just abandon this mindset and let me just start yeah. eating normally or stop binging
1: Absolutely. It often has nothing to do with food. Like food is sort of a manifestation of the other stuff that's going on. Um the majority of the clients that come to me have heard somebody say to them at least once, "Why can't you just eat?" Um yeah. you know, they've they've got, you know, fielded people's frustration, like, "Just take that bite. Like, I don't understand why you're so affected by this." Um and the answer is it it might start out having to do with the food, but it actually doesn't end up being all about the food. Most people in my experience are using food as a way to manipulate their emotions. Um, They're using food as a celebratory thing. They're using it as a way to cope with um, stress, depression, anxiety, sadness, loneliness, boredom, you name it, really any sort of emotion. So food is sort of just a byproduct of whatever their internal emotional experience is. Um, I think that for some people that start an eating disorder because they have this really clear desire to lose weight, um, you could say that, yeah, it's about the food. They're cutting out the food because they want their bodies to be smaller. Um, But it's also more than that. It's wanting to take up less space in the world. It's wanting to feel accepted. Um, and food is the tool that they use in order to accomplish that goal. If that Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. Um, how would you define eating disorders? I feel like society has this like preconceived idea of what an eating disorder is, but I feel like there's some misconceptions surrounding that.
1: So many misconceptions. I think that a lot of people, and, and I do believe that this belief is changing more and more. But I think that a lot of people that assume that if you have an eating disorder, you are usually a cisgender white female, usually a little bit affluent. Um, that has pro- been proven over and over to not be the case. In fact, I think that belief has sort of masked other ethnicities, other um, sexual and gender identities that are also struggling. And so it leads to underreporting because those other communities don't come forward and say, hey, I'm also struggling. Yeah. Um, A lot of people also have this image in their minds when you talk about eating disorders as somebody who is very gaunt, very malnourished. You know, they have that sunken facial features. They look tired. They're small. Um, They have a very delicate frame. Most of my clients don't look that way. The majority of my clients now I've had some that fill that um, that stereotype. But most of them are passing as somebody on the street who's extremely healthy looking. They might be smiling, they might look really alive, and like they're physically thriving, but internally they're really struggling. I know that for me, when I was at my worst and my sickest point, I looked totally fine, and so no one knew about it. Um, I could, you know, I could pass it off as like, oh, I'm just not hungry or, or whatnot. Come up with all kinds of excuses, but the the lo- alarms weren't flaring because I didn't look super thin. So, um, you know, eating disorders can affect any size, um, any shape, any weight. It doesn't have anything to do necessarily with the number. Now, um, within diagnostic criteria, there is, for at least anorexia, a focus on wanting to lose weight. Um, There used to be a focus on the person having to have lost their menstrual cycle it was pretty um, deeply ingrained in the medical and psychological community that that had to be a criteria in order for someone to be diagnosed. The problem with that is men don't have a menstrual cycle, so it completely excluded yeah. them from it. So I think we're seeing lots of changes and shifts in terms of what we think of when we imagine somebody with this presentation. Um, but I also find that you know some people really get stuck in those um, old school stereotypes surrounding disordered eating.
0: Yeah, for sure. And what are like the different types of disordered mm-hmm. eating? Are there some that we don't really hear too much about? I know we've yeah. got like anorexia, bulimia, and like binge eating. Are there any others that we haven't covered?
1: Yeah, so I'll just do sort of um, a broad stroke summary. So anorexia is typically a focus on losing weight, uh, an intense fear of weight gain, and so food refusal because of a fear of gaining weight and a desire to lose weight. Those people are often underweight. Um, but under what weight is the the question I always ask. What is underweight for one person might not be for somebody else. So just to throw out some random numbers, let's say, actually, I'm gonna stay away from numbers because it can be triggering, but each person's um, uh, healthy baseline in terms of weight varies depending on genetics, depending on bone size, muscle mass, all of those factors. So it's hard to say that they have to be within a certain weight range in order to meet that criteria. Bulimia is when you are purging your food. Um, One of the things people don't recognize is purging isn't just vomiting or throwing up. Purging is also laxative use and abuse and excessive compulsive exercise. It's sort of any behavior where you're trying to get rid of calories consumed, again, with an interest and an effort to lose weight um, within anorexia for example there's a subcategory of binge purge so it gets a little bit nuanced where you're restricting most of the day and then you'll binge but you'll throw it up Um, people that struggle with anorexia can be smaller in stature whereas people that struggle with bulimia might look a little bit more on the healthier side but be just as sick of course Um, and that is just because calories consumed can vary Binge eating is when you're eating um, an excessive amount of calories from your body, but most notably, you experience this sense of loss of control. It's not just a subjective loss of control around food, but an objective loss of control. Um, One that people don't talk about as much is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. It's called ARFID. Quite a mouthful of a name, no pun (laughs) intended, but it's um, (laughs) typically more prevalent amongst uh, younger populations. So. When I've worked with cases in which someone's struggling with ARFID, it's I've had a client that was as young as four years old that was struggling, and it's sort of a it's a neophobia, an extreme form of picky eating that leads to medical um, complexity. So it can lead to children being diagnosed as failure to thrive. There's no body image component per se, but it's a f- intense fear of certain foods. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of those kids get mistaken for being on the autism spectrum when in fact it's actually ARFID. Um, so in some of my own um, clinical experience, I've sort of had to help other clinicians and pediatricians disentangle like the difference between the two and say, no, this kiddo actually doesn't have ASD. I really believe that they just have ARFID. And then the treatment looks very different. Um, a, a disorder that we don't talk as much about um, in the literature, but I think it's maybe getting a little bit more traction um, in terms of like, you know, um, the media and whatnot is something called orthorexia. It's not in the DSM-5, I believe. I don't believe it is anyway. I should know those things. Um, but I believe that there's talk about it for sure being in um, subsequent editions of the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Um it is very, uh, very common. It's essentially this focus on healthy eating. So you've probably seen uh, commercials on Instagram, Facebook, TV, wherever people see commercials now, or ads um, where it'll say like this "This has clean ingredients. Um, the idea of eating very clean might be like free of gluten, free of dairy, uh, free of saturated fats, um, which is very different from a person that's getting rid of those things because they have like a specific um, medical diagnosis that prevents them from eating those things. Orthorexia is this preoccupation with, I wanna eat all clean foods, I wanna eat all organic. Um, There is a focus on health as well as weight loss, but it's it's sort of um, masked under the umbrella as just like healthy eating, if that makes sense. And it's so common. I'll actually get a lot of clients that will come to me about something completely unrelated to an eating disorder. And then we start to peel back sort of the layers and we see that there's actually some orthorexia at play. So it's extremely common and hopefully getting a little bit more recognition than it used to be so we can be treating it.
0: Yeah, for sure. And do you think it's important to have more information out there so people might have more awareness if they are suffering with one of these disorders so they can get help more easily?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, And I think it's really important to start that messaging early on in people's like academic, in in academic institutions. Um, A lot of times kids go to the pediatrician and they're told, you know, don't drink so much soda, don't eat so much sugar, this is what your BMI is. Um, but what they're not talking about is like, what is your relationship with your body? What is your relationship like with food? They're saying all these do nots. And I think children interpret that as, oh, those things are bad. Therefore I'm bad. And so I think that we should be having more conversation around our relationship with our bodies, our relationships with different foods, um, and also spreading awareness to parents about how these eating disorders can show up. Because I think a lot of parents assume it's like a really, really malnourished kid, um, So I think that starting much younger is important in order to sort of prevent this from uh, taking over as people become young adults.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've got like sex ed in school and Mm -hmm. kids start to learn about that so young, but that's also the age where these sorts of things start coming up as well and they've mm-hmm. really got not much guidance to help them through that or not yeah. much like education surrounding what they're going through and they have to figure that out and then it leads to years of struggling before they even realize that they're suffering with something
1: absolutely and i i think that it, it, it's a fine line because you want to provide the education but as you probably know like kids are also really um impressionable right so you don't want to mm-hmm influence them too much. So it's really hard to navigate. Um, But I I do think it's something like you said, important, just like with sex ed, it's, it's one of the number one killers um, for adolescents um, under 18. Uh, So why aren't we talking about it more, you know, especially at a young age?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, and I really just want to debunk this idea that people think that eating disorders are the individual's fault or there is yeah. a blank place like, is this true? No, it's not true. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we have to take some
1: responsibility for our actions. I made a, a, for me. I made a very conscious decision. I was I was bullied severely. I really wanted to fit in. Um, And I made this conscious decision of, okay, I'm gonna try to change my physical appearance because I think that it's gonna um, help me achieve the social goals that I want. I was only 13, I had no idea what the implications were. It's important to take responsibility for that. But I'm not at fault because what happens is your brain sort of develops around this new addiction. Um, We're also inundated with so many messages in the media about how we're supposed to look even uh, messages around health and like I said, clean eating. So I I really believe that people in this world are, are, you know, the cards are kind of stacked against them. They're inundated with so many maladaptive viewpoints on what a healthy body image is um, and, you know, what healthy food is. Something that that I really struggle with is when parents come to me and they say, you know, what have I been doing wrong? Is it the way I talked about my body? Is it the kinds of foods that i've had in the house is that what's causing my child's illness and the answer is no that can have an influence but parents are just as vulnerable to those influences from the media so i think we have to think more you know at the higher up on the chain in terms of where the fault lies rather than within within the individual that's struggling
0: yeah definitely and is there anything else we might get wrong when it comes to eating disorders I think the biggest one is that weight is a is a
1: indicator of level of severity. Mm-hmm. Um that's a that's a huge one. I think that's the one that I confront the most. Uh, you know, it, it goes as far as with insurance companies, you know, saying, well that person doesn't meet medical criteria for us to cover their care. Um that's a huge misconception within this um, disorder. Um I'd say that's probably the biggest for me. Another one, though, I've noticed is this misconception that, um, you know, men don't struggle nearly as much as women do. It's not true at all. Um, We're starting to see more and more that within the gay community, there's a huge preoccupation with body image. There's lots of eating disorders, but also within the straight male community. Um, Unfortunately, because we don't automatically think that it affects straight men as well. Those men often go undiagnosed because there's a lot of shame um, that interferes with them coming forward and saying, hey, I need a little bit of help.
0: Yeah, for sure. I can't imagine like how hard it must be, especially for men to come forward with this, because there's Mm -hmm. also this idea of like toxic masculinity and like maintaining an image that really prevents people from coming forward because they think there's so much to be ashamed of in admitting that they're struggling.
1: Totally, totally. And, you know, men are encouraged to work out and build muscle, but that can mm-hmm. also be a form be- of disordered eating. Um, it can meet criteria for purging, right? I mean, that excessive yeah. exercise piece. I've, I, when I was going to the gym way back in the day, I don't I, I don't go anymore because I don't have time. <laughs> I remember yeah. seeing so many people and the same people over and over. And you could tell that they, men had just been working themselves out to death. And you could just tell that It was driven by something more than a desire to um, release endorphins in their brain and feel good. It was very um, disordered in nature.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think this leads really well into my next question of how do like societal or cultural messages about beauty and like body image contribute to like eating disorders? I know social media plays a massive part in influencing this nowadays.
1: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Um, You know, so I recently had a baby. She's 10 months old. And it's interesting how social media feeds you the kinds of ads that um, are uh, relatable to whatever phase of life you're in. And so yeah. I on my Instagram feed, and I have no idea where this started or, or <laughs> ads in all different kinds of places, um, I would see these ads for like bouncing back after having a baby. And so even when you've done something as much of a miracle and as beautiful as like housing a human and, and giving birth to life, you're told, like, you need to change. Um, yeah. It's everywhere. Um, you know, f- there uh, for for young kids even, um, there's uh, commercials for like low sugar things and nothing wrong if your dentist says eat less sugar because you're gonna get cavities, but that's not necessarily something everyone has to do. And, and kids don't know how to make sense of these messages. And so they just hear them and they think, okay, I need to make these changes, otherwise I'm bad. Um, I think social media especially really needs to change and and advertisements that people see on TV, um, they play a huge, huge role in the development of disordered eating and body image disturbance.
0: Yeah, definitely. Especially when you see like your favorite celebrity promoting weight loss tea or gummies or all these new and different things, Mm -hmm. you must think, oh, wow, like they're doing it. This must be great. But in reality, they're getting paid to do that.
1: Exactly. And I I feel badly mentioning celebrities that I also really like, like I love Jessica Simpson. I was a huge Jessica Simpson fan growing up, but even, you know, she's been under the microscope for this because she's been coming out having lost, I think a hundred pounds or some, some enormous number and young kids that can't look at that because they don't have the knowledge and awareness to say like, that's not good. They're seeing that and they're thinking, Oh, so maybe I should do the same. Yeah. Um, it's it's everywhere. The before and the after photos. Um, I think also what people don't recognize is there's a lot of Photoshop and editing that goes into stuff. Um, oh yeah. M- many of my adolescent clients, they're I- I've actually asked them virtually, show me your Instagram feed. Not like their friend feed, but just the random feed of things that they get. And a lot of it are is like different weight loss tips, showing, you know, I lost X many pounds in 40 days. Here's my before and my after. And so these teenagers start to believe that that's attainable when really it was editing tons and tons and tons of photo editing and apps that allow a person to shrink their body to a different size. But when you don't have that awareness, you think, oh, it's because they started exercising a lot and eating differently. So therefore I'm going to do the same. But what happens is those, those teenagers end up developing an eating disorder.
0: Yeah. For sure. And do you think, I know it's a bit left field, but do you think like cosmetic surgery comes into play in any way um, with people with eating disorders? Do they think there's some, this is some sort of like temporary fix or a solution to achieving yeah. that ideal body?
1: I think that some do. Um, I think it really varies depending on the person. Um, you know, I've had a couple clients who are young adults, you know, so, you know, freshman, sophomore in college. And so they're legally allowed to pursue cosmetic surgery without their parents' consent. Um, and for those people that I'm thinking of, yeah, there was this, this deep belief that if they changed the way their body looked from via surgical procedures, they would feel better about themselves. But I, I like to remind people that doing that is sort of like a game of whack-a-mole. I don't know if you're familiar with that kid's game, but basically you have like a hammer and you knock the mole down and then another one pops up. Oh, and yeah. you um I was, a, I was a nanny before I got my doctorate. So that's, I have a lot of um, kid, kid game analogies in my um, tool belt, um, but it's sort of like that, right? You fix this one part of your body, but then you end up focusing on something else and then you fix that and then that, and then that. And that's sort of where body dysmorphia can emerge. Um, you start looking to all these different surgeries to get the body you want and before you know it you've kind of developed an addiction per se to plastic surgery
0: yeah definitely and is body dysmorphia something that comes after you've sort of developed the eating disorder or is it something you can start with or do you normally talk about it that way So it's definitely
1: something you can start with. It's not something that I have a ton of experience treating because it's different from classic disordered eating. Body dysmorphia can come in the form of me, let's say, looking at my face and thinking that I have an enormous nose. I have a normal nose. Um, It works. It's not too big, not too small. It's normal. But somebody with body dysmorphia might look in the mirror and see this enormous thing on their face Um, that has nothing to do with weight loss or manipulating their food intake. So it doesn't necessarily have to do with an eating disorder thing per se, but it is a preoccupation with appearance of some sort, some part of your body. And then this intense desire to want to change that. Um, And also a lot of anxiety around that part of your body and and fear of judgment and, and whatnot.
0: Yeah, for sure. And what would you say are like those first steps for people to separate their sense of self from their eating disorder?
1: Yeah, so one of the things I'll often ask my clients is to imagine a time in their life when they were happy. Um, That can be a really difficult exercise for some of my clients because some people struggle to think of any time in their life when they felt happy. But I think that exercise can really help you overcome this illness. Um, I think that remembering that type of person that you were, the things that you were interested can help you develop an identity that's separate from the illness. One of the things that I notice with my clients is they say like, I'm anorexic, I'm bulimic, versus I have an eating disorder. You know if somebody is diagnosed with cancer they don't say like hi i'm kathleen i'm cancer they say hi i'm kathleen and i have this disease and i'm fighting it and yet with mental illness we assume the label and we start to embody it and so helping people move past that identity means helping them remember, you know, the things that used to make up their identity, hobbies, are they a good friend, were they a student, what made them happy, what made them smile, what made them sad, and, and helping them focus on those things and get back to that, so that they're not so beholden to this um, negative voice that's cutting them down all the time. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, definitely. Um, why do you think people start to like lose a sense of their identity when they start developing an eating disorder?
1: Because it comes becomes your world. Um, you know, when I was when I was in the thick of my illness, I would, you know, joke that I was in a relationship with this other being that was in my brain, um, which I, I realize sounds a little bit wacky, but it's all consuming. Um You know, the longer a person struggles, the more likely they are to not be able to function in school, they'll lose friendships. Gosh, heaven forbid, be able to find a romantic relationship because people get tired of dealing with it. And so as people's worlds get smaller, the eating disorder voice gets louder and louder. And I think people begin to identify with it even more. Um, A lot of times, well, I'll speak for myself, mine developed when I was 13. So I was at the height of coming into myself Instead of coming into myself as this young, vibrant pre-adolescent, I came into myself as somebody that was struggling with anorexia and bulimia. Um, and so that's all I knew. And I, it was around during these formative years when I was learning to cope with adversity, but instead of coping with it in a healthy, reasonable manner, I was coping with it. I was coping with things using food. Um, so I stopped. I, I, that's all I knew. And I think that's the case with a lot of people.
0: Yeah, for sure. And what is like the role of personal resilience um, when it comes to like mental, mental health issues dealing with like eating disorders?
1: Yeah. What is the role of personal resilience? Um, I think it is a, a strength of fire within people. Um, I, it's a desire. Actually, I take that back. It's not so much a desire, but a willingness to believe that there's something else out there and a willingness to take a step forward, even when you take two steps back um the people that recover from an eating disorder whether they fully recover or they just sort of change some of their beliefs around food they are such resilient people they have to be because in order to recover you take a really sinuous path. You go down you know, different offshoots of the primary recovery path and you have to uh, motivate yourself to get back on. And that means being resilient. It means being willing to fight back when you feel like you're punched down by the illness, being able to talk back to it being able to refute the things that it's telling you that aren't true about yourself. So I think resiliency is really at the heart of the recovery journey and um, something that's really important to focus on uh, in therapy with the person's treatment team, it's something that I certainly emphasize a lot.
0: Yeah, for sure. And there are definitely things like we've talked about that the individual can do for themselves, um, mm-hmm. like seeking help. But what can um, us as a, as a society do to help people and help minimize this harm related to eating disorders?
1: Yeah, um, really good question. A couple things, I think checking in with those around you, you know, when you notice that something's off with a friend, asking them, you know, what's, what's going on with you? I've noticed that you seem a little bit different. You don't necessarily have to come out and say, why aren't you eating your food? you know, you can ask about it in a roundabout way because I think that allows people to be more um, transparent and less on the defense. Uh, Another thing that I think is really important is to really popularize this health at every size model. Um, It's definitely gaining more traction in the media and certainly within my immediate community, but it's this belief that health can happen across all body shapes and weights. Uh, There's a belief that having fat and identifying as fat is a bad thing. Fat is a substance on our body that we need. Um, it, people can have more fat on their body and it doesn't make them any less healthy. Um, they can be thriving um, from a medical standpoint, but there's this really deeply ingrained assumption that if you're over a certain weight, you're not living your best life. Um, I think the other thing that we can do to, to fight against the um the surge of eating disorders that I'm certainly seeing is, you know, question your media consumption a little bit, be a conscious consumer of what you're hearing and what you're seeing. That includes what you hear and what you see from your medical provider. When a kid goes to their doctor, their doctors often use the basic mass index, the BMI, um, as a benchmark for health, Um I won't swear, but we, we used to refer to the BMI as the bull S um, mass index um, because it isn't, it's, you know, it's not the word of God per se. It, it has some flaws to it. And I think a lot yeah. of people don't know that unless you're um, really educated in this stuff. And and so being even a conscious consumer in, in those things, and when you go to your medical provider, I think is, you know, could be a helpful step in helping to prevent this a bit
0: yeah, for sure. And I really wish we had so much time to just talk about it, because the more you talk, the more questions I have for you. Um, but can eating disorders have a long-term impact on self-esteem and self-worth, even when you've you know surpassed the disorder and you' you're feeling more healthy?
1: I think I can. Um and I think that my answer might be a little bit surprising. I find that when someone really embraces recovery fully, Um, they really do the work, that they actually have a much healthier body image than the average person that's never struggled. Um, Mm. They can feel more self-confident because they've had to work on this stuff a lot more. If you've never had an eating disorder, you probably haven't had conversations with yourself about your value and your self-worth, and you haven't had to challenge all of these other statements happening around you. Somebody going through the recovery journey is doing that, and they're doing it over and over and over and over. I know for myself... When I entered this deeper level of recovery, I felt so much more confident in my body, not because it looked how I wanted it to be, but because I had fully accepted the fact that my body changes and my body is more than its physical appearance. So although for some people having an eating disorder, even post-recovery can impact them negatively, I find that a lot of my clients sort of become champions for body acceptance. Um, And they actually live more full and secure and confident lives than had they not struggled at all to begin with. Um, A lot of times people become spokesperson, spokespeople for the recovery community, or they're like me and they enter this field where they want to help others that are struggling. Um, And in order to do that, you have to sort of recite these positive messages over and over and over. And so you believe them more and more and more. So I certainly think it can actually help people in the end if they get through recovery.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And that in itself is resilience at play, which Mm -hmm. is awesome. But what about those people who are struggling to build that positive self-image? How do you go about helping them more, helping them be more confident in themselves?
1: That's really hard. You know, you can't force someone to be confident in themselves. You can meet them where they're at in their journey, um, I will recognize that, yeah, you don't love the way you look today, but what is your body doing for you? And so I'll often encourage my clients to focus on the, the function of their body, not the form of their body. It feels really cheesy to them, but I know through my own practice that it can be really impactful. So thinking about the things you value in your body, right? Maybe it's just that your legs got you from one thing to another, but that's still something to have gratitude for, um. It's not, you know, feeling confident in your body isn't something that happens overnight. It's something that takes years and years and years to embody. You know, it takes somebody a long time to feel really terrible about themselves. So it takes even longer to start to feel good. Um, I remind people that just because you feel this way right now doesn't mean you're going to feel this way tomorrow. Um, For some people, embracing themselves and loving themselves isn't even the goal. The goal is acceptance, regardless of what, and respect, regardless of whether they like their body or not. You can wake up each day and have a really full life and not love the way you look in the mirror. But that doesn't mean that you're necessarily manipulating your killer intake, right? It just means you're, okay, I don't really like my body that much. And yet it's allowing me to do all of these other really cool things. And those are things I value. So sometimes yeah. body, imi- body um, love isn't even the goal. It just really depends client to client.
0: Yeah, for sure. And we've established that there is a clear impact on our relationship with ourself. How mm-hmm. do you think eating disorders affect our other relationships, romantic, family, friendships?
1: Oh, my gosh. They have such an impact. Um, you know, it's when I've worked with teens, for example, it's a family disorder. There's something called family-based therapy. And the reason that thing exists is because it's a family affair it brings everyone down because, you know, if you just think about it across all cultures, food is a really important activity per se. Um, yeah. You come around the dinner table or you sit on the sofa around the coffee table and you eat, whatever your your um, context looks like, food brings people together. And so when you're not comfortable eating with people or you prefer to eat in secrecy whatever the manifestation is like that creates ruptures and relationships. It's also really hard to be in a romantic relationship with somebody, especially if you're intimate sexually, because you know, you're sharing your bodies with one another. And so if you're uncomfortable in your own, it's really scary to share that with somebody else. Um, I remember a lot of my relationship suffering because I wasn't ready to do the work and be really honest with myself. Um, and, and I, I've, you know, I, People get really tired of dealing with it. It's, um, it's not dissimilar from dealing with a person who is suffering from um, an addiction with substances like drugs or alcohol. Um, when somebody has an eating disorder for such a long period of time, it, it kind of changes their personality. They get kind of fo- focused on this fix, right? They get focused on not eating um, or eating a lot and, and that erodes away at the relationship.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's so hard to sort of work on yourself and also be aware of how it's impacting others because you're so like caught up in your little world. Like you said, like yeah. it consumes your world. So it's just so many different factors at play. And I'd love to now move into like the practices and talk Hello. a bit more about you. Like how do you help maintain your sense of self and self-image? Mm,
1: Yeah, you know, I think just being in this field helps me redefine what's important to me in terms of self image. Um, Having a child certainly gave me a new appreciation for my body. I don't see it as um, something that I'm, you know, only appreciate when it looks good. I, I experience it as something that's done a really incredible thing and give life giving life to another human being. Other things that I use to maintain a healthy relationship with myself is, um, and again, this sounds cheesy, but finding um, moments to express gratitude to the parts of my body that I previously really hated and talked really cruelly towards. For me, that was my stomach and my thighs. So like I said before, finding the function in those parts of my body um, and sending a lot of gratitude that way. Another thing I do when I, because I mean, yes, I'm fully recovered, but every once in a while, those you know, things pop up in my brain around certain types of food and in order to get out of my head and back into my body and focusing on what matters, I do this exercise that I also recommend to my clients, which is called five new things. Um, It essentially means I'm looking to my environment to find five new things, whether it's, um, and then within those things, I try to access them according to the five senses. Um, Taste is sometimes one that I don't uh, access, but you know, finding like a a piece of grass, like does it smell, how does it feel? And sort of getting myself out of my head into my physical surroundings can be really, really helpful and grounding. I also like to come home to my breath. So feeling the sensation of air through my body takes the focus away from the form of my body as well. So those are some of my practices and and also ones that I um, encourage my clients to utilize when needed.
0: Yeah, amazing. And do you find that there are any challenges to these practices you use?
1: Yeah, it can be really hard for people to sit in their body and um, sort of hold a magnifying glass up to it. I think for some clients, especially those that have a trauma history, closing your eyes and focusing on the feeling of breath can be really activating. It can start to feel unsafe for clients that have that experience i'll often um explore doing the five new things exercise um, keeping their eyes open um, looking at certain things rather than closing their eyes and going inward Uh, so it really it really depends
0: yeah for sure and do you set up like a time in your day where you do these practices or is it more like ingrained into just your daily life
1: Oh, my gosh. I wish I could set up a time, but with a 10-month-old, it's literally impossible. (laughs) Um, You know, back in the day, I worked at a treatment facility, and I was... I was really disciplined about doing meditation in the morning and closing my eyes and checking in with myself. I would actually go paddleboarding and and do some meditation on my paddle board um, in the San Francisco Bay. I do none of that anymore because I don't have time. Um, I wish I could implement it consistently, but I, I do a lot of active stuff, right? So um, let's say I'm washing dishes in the kitchen. I might come home to my breath during that time with my eyes open, but noticing the flow of air or noticing how the water feels in my hand on my hands, and and making it sort of an active mindfulness practice. But so it is a little bit um, just sort of impromptu versus planned. I do I do think it there's a lot of benefit though to um, scheduling that into your day, especially in the morning, because I think it can kind of set the tone for the rest of the day for people.
0: Yeah, beautiful. And do you recommend like this practice to anyone, or do you encourage people to find what works for them?
1: Find what works for you, right? Um, this is what works for me. It's what works for some of my clients. Um, you know, a lot of people enjoy progressive muscle relaxation. I walked a client through that and she told me it made things worse. So it really just depends. That was the yeah. first time I'd ever heard that. Um, oh. So, it really, it, it really is sort of trial and error and figuring yeah. out what works for the individual.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, and based on your experience, do you have any other recommendations of practices people can use?
1: Yeah, I think exercise can be helpful because it helps you focus on the function of your body versus the form. It can also be a slippery slope if somebody has struggled with compulsive and excessive exercise. It can sort of, um, you know, trigger that part of the brain that uses exercise as a means of compensation for food, um, calories eaten. But I think exercise can also be a really healthy tool. Um, journaling is certainly another one, um, helping people sort of work out their thoughts. Um, talking to people, talking to people that are, feel like really safe resources, I think can also be yeah. really useful.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Um, I think this leads on into our next section beautifully, mm-hmm. and it will just add to what we've been talking about, but I've got a couple questions from the audience I'd love to ask you. Okay. Um, are there any specific therapeutic approaches or techniques that individuals um, can use or that you use um, with your clients to help build a stronger sense of self?
1: So I love doing inner child work um, and I, I sort of alluded to it before, but I'll ask people to actually bring, bring in, so bring onto the computer screen <laughs> because I do all virtual <laughs> sessions, a photo yeah. of themselves from when they were free of any preoccupation with food or body image um, and, and talk about who that person was. What are the things that that person or that child valued? and then what got in the way. And I think sort of anchoring back to that inner child can be a really helpful way to to regain a sense of self. Um, The other thing that I love to do is what's called like externalizing the eating disorder. So viewing the eating disorder as this third party that's hijacked a person's brain, almost as if they're like an abusive partner. You know, they say the the eating disorder, and we'll often call it by name, usually Ed, the eating disorder says, you know, don't eat that. You're going to gain weight. You're bad if you eat that. And then coming up with personalized, challenging statements to say back to the, the, to Ed, whether you say it back out loud when you're alone, or you say it sort of silently to yourself, um, because that helps you separate from the illness and thereby regain a sense of self. It's, you know, learning to rebel against this disorder that's constantly cutting you down and reducing your self-worth towards your weight.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really great technique. I love this idea of the inner child and sort of like speaking to yourself as well is really great. Um, To my next question, does someone ever truly escape the mindset and tendencies from having an eating disorder? I know you mentioned before, sometimes things will pop into your mind, um, but is that always the case?
1: You can absolutely recover fully from an eating disorder. In fact, that should have been one of the things I mentioned when we were talking about sort of different myths that are worth debunking around disordered eating. You can live a life of total food freedom and free of any preoccupation with your body image. Um, I don't think about my body or food most days. When I do, it's just such a fleeting thought, but it's usually most often it's like oh my gosh this would have been a situation that i would have gotten really caught up in more so than oh my gosh i need to change the what 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 i'm eating and the way i look i know so many people that are fully recovered i have family members where you can ask them about their experience and it's been so long and they're so on the other side of it that they can't even remember so eating disorder recovery is 100% possible. And the belief that once you're sick, you're always gonna be sick, I think actually keeps people from moving to that next level in their recovery journey, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, for sure. And one of my personal questions, um, do you ever find that some people are in this state of like wanting people to pity them and like staying in that sort of mental state and they like that sort of attention?
1: I think that for some people, that's the case. Um, You know, I, I think for others, it's the exact opposite. For example, in my clinical work, I've worked with people that had sexual trauma histories. They were survivors of sexual assault, per se. And for some of those individuals, they wanted to lose weight or actually gain weight because they wanted to be unattractive in their eyes or they wanted to take up less space. So they were actually trying to achieve the exact opposite, which is, leave me alone. It doesn't feel safe if people pay attention to me. Um, I've also worked with individuals that feel like they're not getting enough attention and value from friends and family. That was my experience. And so they want to change the way they look and lose weight so that people start to take them seriously and see like, hey, I'm really suffering. Um, Unfortunately, I think it's too frequent that people say, oh my gosh, you're just doing that for attention. And so therefore I'm not, I'm not going to be compassionate and take this seriously. And that can actually exacerbate the illness because then that person works harder to get those to worry about them and and they just start to kind of spiral.
0: Yeah, for sure. And thank you so much for having such an open conversation about this topic. I know it can be, hard and triggering sometimes, but it's also so hard to traverse. Like the more we've talked about it, the more I have realized how like complex this topic actually is that it's not yeah. just, oh, I've got an eating disorder or oh, I'm anorexic. Like that's it. There's so much to it.
1: Mm-hmm. There really, there really is. Um, you know, people just assume that it looks like one thing, but in my work, it's so much more nuanced. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's important that we're talking about this and hopefully, um, there can be more, uh, everyday communication about how this illness can show up for people.
0: Yeah, definitely. I hope so too. Um, let's now get into our open mic section. So here, we're just going to invite you to talk about anything you're passionate about. Could be about eating disorders, could be about genuinely anything at all. Um, so Kathleen, the floor is yours. Gosh, what am I passionate about? Um, I would have said before that I'm
1: passionate about eating disorders in particular. I think that now I'm passionate about um mothers right and and just sort of how our view of self shifts as we become mothers uh the reason i'm passionate about that of course is because i am a new mom um and it's this world that i never thought that i would enter into and that i'm just totally blown away by every day um I, I guess you could sort of relate it to eating disorders because specifically, I, I'm, I'm really interested in sort of how our view of self changes. Um, there's so much selflessness that goes along with becoming a parent. Um, and, and yet we also don't want to lose, lose sight of who we are. Um, so that's something that's sort of been top of mind. Um, gosh, what else am I passionate, um, about? I'm incredibly passionate about food, traveling for food. We just did, uh, which is ironic given my area specialty. I think I said this earlier, but my husband and I just did a one month long Europe trip where we went to, to France, Italy, um, and Croatia. And he jokes that he likes to travel for experiences and, and sites and hiking. And I travel to eat, Um, because I love tasting different foods and just experiencing how people um, enjoy different foods and and come together across different cultures. Um, So those are two things that are sort of top of mind and and interesting to me at this moment. But it's I mean, it's always evolving based on what's, you know, right in front of me.
0: Yeah, amazing. No, I can definitely relate to food being my like number one passion in this world. (laughs) Um, Do you have a favorite cuisine at all?
1: Okay. That's a hard, hard question. I think Persian food is my favorite. So my father's from Iran. Um, and, and my parents divorced when I was very young, but my mom learned how to cook amazing Persian food. And so I, I had it in both households. It's probably still my favorite food. Um, I think, I mean, sushi is also a pretty big one for me. Um, ironically i didn't crave it once when i was um pregnant which is great because i couldn't you're not supposed to have raw fish anyway but uh yeah. that's definitely a trip i want to take is going i've been to japan once essentially to eat um but i'd like to go back to go to the tokyo fish market and and all of that those are so those are my two favorite sushi and um or japanese food and persian food
0: wow that's amazing did you have anything interesting that you tried while you were in europe
1: yeah i'm trying to think if there's anything i tried though that i haven't had before um oh gosh that's a tough question interesting things i've tried um i ate a lot of wild boar uh, oh. which is not something have you ever had wild boar
0: no i'm vegetarian at the moment oh. <laughs> i'm so sorry <laughs> that's a <lovely laughs> totally horrible to hear but no go on it's really good it's really
1: good (laughs) um but that was interesting and and something that I don't normally have I'm trying to think of something else that I've tried um that's interesting so not on this trip and actually not out of the states whatsoever um I was visiting my uncle many years ago um, and he lives in Reston Virginia he's Iranian um and in Iran they um you know, usually when you arrive as a show of honor, they sacrifice an animal, a lamb, and then you eat the whole thing. And we didn't do, they didn't do that. It's heartbreaking. I would never handle that. Well, Um, they didn't sacrifice a lamb or anything, but they prepared the whole thing. And so in cultural tradition, you eat every part of it. And I'd say that was probably the most interesting experience. Also not extremely appetizing, but that's probably my most interesting, um, food experience thus far.
0: No, that's awesome. I love hearing how like different cultures bring in food and tradition. I think it's so interesting. It really is.
1: It really is. And, you know, some traditions aren't for everybody, um, but I <laughs> I try to take part in, in whatever the culture is presenting to me at that time, just more as a show of respect and to give it a shot before I decide if I don't like it.
0: Yeah, amazing. I love that. Um, so, thank you so much for joining us today. I love how we left it on that note. That's so great. Um, definitely different to what we've been talking about. Um, but I think this conversation has added so much into the much needed variety surrounding this topic. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Personally, I know that I've taken so much away from this. Like, we need to make sure that people realize that they're worthy and deserving of help, health, and happiness. Like, no matter who um, you are, no matter what disorder you have, like having that care and being there for someone is just so important. Mm-hmm. And just lastly, for those who want to find out more about you or find out any more social media details, where can they go? Uh,
1: they can just Google Kathleen Sommet PhD. Um, my website, um, is a, is a way that they can reach out to me. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, people are welcome to send me a message. I will always respond. Um, I think it's really important to to be there for other people that are interested in learning about this topic professionally and also personally. So those are probably the two best ways to to find me. I'm also happy to share an email if that's easier.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, we'll also have your details in the description below um, for anyone who missed that. But to everyone listening, please don't forget to like and subscribe on whatever platform you're using. And we'll see you guys next time. You've been listening to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by the Life Management Science Labs. Listen to episodes from LMSL's 10 life management perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or other podcasting apps on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it and us grow to bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, pr.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Joanna. Thanks for tuning in.